I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, begin at verse 6. And pointing these things out to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the word of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come, is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers, prescribe and teach these things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your precious Word. Thank You for the guidance that it is to our lives. We would be lost without it. We would, we would just float in a sea of relativism. There would be no direction for our lives. There would be no... Um, anchor for our souls. There would be no foundation. It would be, we would just be following Satan's lies like the rest of the world. So Lord, we thank you for this word, this precious light in the darkness. I pray, Lord, as it's expounded today, that it would be clear, that it would uh, touch our hearts. And Lord, I pray that it would be applied to our lives, obeyed, taken for what it truly is, the Word of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God is using the Apostle Paul to speak to Timothy, to, to bring some direction to Timothy's life. Now, I mentioned that last week in passing, but I think it's, it's really interesting. I mean, think about this. Timothy was a, a pastor of this church. Now, he had been a missionary. He had followed Paul around. And he had stayed uh, at some churches for a little while, but this one is, uh, seems to be a more permanent position. And so there he finds himself, and he probably is crying out to the Lord, Lord, help me. Give me some direction here. Help me to know what to do on a daily basis. And the Lord is going to do that. But he, he doesn't come directly to Timothy to give him direct revelation. He comes to the Apostle Paul, and it comes through a letter, something that's written down for him. Um, and much of what is stated here in this letter to Timothy is just to Timothy, specifically to Timothy. So, and I think it's really interesting today that many pastors have this idea that I'm just going to sit back and wait for revelation to uh, come from God. I mean, God will tell me what to do, and, and I'll do this. And God said for me to do this, and God said for me to do that. He didn't even do that for Timothy. He went through the Apostle Paul. He, he goes through men to do these things, to, to write these things down, and here we have them today. Um, not just for Timothy, but to the church at large, and for us, even 2,000 years later, they still apply. And we're beginning to see what it means to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. In this passage, from verses 6 down to verse 16, there's 12 present tense imperatives. 
A present tense imperative. An imperative is a command. Is something that's imperative for you to do, Timothy. These are things that are important for you. And now it's present tense. I point that out because this is something that Timothy is to do on a regular basis. He is to continually to do these things. And Timothy, if you do these things, you're going to be a, a good servant. And these are commands, imperatives that we can apply to our own lives. You say, well, that's just for pastors. Those are just for shepherds. But in a sense, we are all to be bringing other people along. We are to be bringing our children along, our, our wives along. We are to be bringing them along spiritually. So in a sense, we are all a spiritual leader. And so these things can apply to our own life. And so we seek to be a good servant. Now here's the point. Here's what we were uh, pointing out last week. A good servant of the living God is one who minimizes the distractions of the world and focuses upon pleasing God. His focus is upon pleasing his master, pleasing God. And the question that Paul answers for us in this passage is what makes a person a good servant of God? Paul, give us some details here. What we, we need to know, what do we do on a daily basis? What do we do to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, and Paul gives that to us. And it's not just for Timothy, it's for, it's for all of us. And he lays these things out in principles. There's a lot of principles to be had here in this passage. And we looked at four last week, so let's just quickly review those. A good servant sees himself, number one, as a servant of the living God with the goal to please his master. In verse 6, he says, in pointing these things out, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. If you want to be a good servant, Timothy, here's what you do. And it's conditional. If, if you point these things out, then you will be a good servant. Now, it's inherent uh, within the servant that uh, he is, and, and it's fundamental that he please his master. That's what he wants. In fact, it becomes so much a part of his identity that that's who he is. He is a servant of the living God. That's, that's just what he does. That's what he is. And he seeks to please his master. And that's, I believe, that was Timothy's heart. Number two, the good servant points others to God's truths. Points others to God's truths. And that's, we pick up the first one in pointing these things out. It's conditional. If you are not pointing these things out, Timothy, then you're not going to be a good servant. If you do point these things out, and you will be a good servant. And what does that mean? Well, we're essentially all messengers of God. God has given this world a message, a message of salvation and principles to live our lives by. And we are to, as good servants, we are to point other people to God's truths, to God's principles. And number three, a good servant is continuously feeding himself on the Word of God. Look at the middle of verse 6. He said, constantly nourished on the Word of the faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. A good servant of Jesus Christ, first of all, feeds himself. He's nourished on the Word himself. And then all of ministry comes out of that, flows from that. The Word of God ministers to his own heart first. Number four, the good servant does not get distracted from worldly, with worldly philosophies. In verse seven, 
but have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. Now, Paul doesn't have anything to, uh, uh, he doesn't have anything against old women. He's talking about the uneducated. In the Roman world, the, the women would not have been allowed to be educated. Now, it's not so in the Christian world, and I should have pointed that out last week. But if you look back at chapter 2 and verse 11, he said, a woman must quietly receive instruction. They are to be taught in the church. In fact, in Titus, we see that the older women are to what? Instruct the younger women. They are to teach. They're commanded to teach, but they have to know the Word of God to be able to do that. So Paul has nothing to do with, uh, nothing uh, against old women. He's just talking about the uneducated, the undisciplined mind. And the emphasis here is upon worldly philosophies. The worldly philosophies. These foolish myths that, you are, that, that, that people follow. These myths that are ungodly, profane, vile, irreligious. And they all come from the world. This is the way the world thinks. Now, if you remember back in, in the Old Testament, Solomon, he was the uh, wisest man, and he had wealth, and he had the time, and, and he pursued all of these worldly things, all of this worldly advice and worldly myths, and, and he said, you know what, everything under the sun, everything that excludes God, it's vanity. It's vanity. And Paul says, and we looked at it a couple weeks ago, that essentially they're just doctrines of demons. They're lies fed to us by Satan. And Satan just directs the world, guides the world wherever he wants it to go. And it's away from God. And as Christians, we are to recognize these myths, these worldly philosophies, and then we are to reject them. That's what Paul says. We're to have discernment. Discernment as believers. Now that brings us to principle number five. Number five, the good servant focuses upon godliness. Now Paul spends some time in this. Look at verse, the middle of verse seven. It says, on the other hand, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Now let me start right there. This is a statement. This is a, a, a probably a, a little part of a doctrinal statement from the early church that they would maybe quote to each other, quote to themselves, and it probably became a more lengthy doctrinal statement. But, but it was just a, a little quote. And Paul says, this is a good quote. This is a good statement. It's, it's worthy of full acceptance. And it has to do with, with godliness. It has to do with godliness. He says, on the other hand. On the other hand, instead of following stupidity, instead of following the worldly myths, this ungodly philosophy that Satan's just dishing out, instead of following those things, this undisciplined mind, uneducated mind, at least it uneducated to spiritual things. Timothy, I want you to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. There is a better way to spend your time, a better behavior. Instead of the uneducated, undisciplined mind, we are to have a disciplined mind. And he uses the word discipline. The word is gymnazo in, in the Greek. And uh, 
We get our word gymnasium from that word, and it means to train or to to exercise. Every good Greek city is going to have a gymnasium. And they, uh, the athletes would go and they would undertake, undergo uh, rigorous, uh, strenuous, self-sacrificing training in these places. Many times it was young men. From 16 to 18, they would prepare themselves maybe for the games or maybe just physically they would prepare themselves maybe for the military. But they were training their body. And that's the idea. They were to be disciplined. Now, discipline means you're, you're channeling all of your attention, all of your energy, all of your focus into one thing, one activity, one specific thing. If you're studying for, to be a, a, a lawyer, to get a law degree, all of your focus is upon those law books and studying those things. If you're, if you're wanting to be a good football player, you discipline yourself in those in those ways. And it's, and it's mental discipline as well as physical discipline. It's a whole body. If you're learning to do a job, you discipline yourself for that particular job. You become good at it. You discipline yourself. Now, many times, uh, for us, this single purpose, this single focus that we are to discipline ourselves in, it says, for the purpose of godliness. Like a, a laser light beam that just shines right on it. This is exactly what we're to go to. Godliness. Godliness. So often, just in our depraved minds and our depravity, we think, oh, I'm pretty disciplined. <laughs> I'm a pretty disciplined person. But man, when you look at Scripture, at the... At the uh, the attention that this draws, and Paul's just talking, and we'll, we'll see this in just a minute, it takes some strenuous effort, some real discipline to be godly. Real discipline, Paul says. We have to bring attention to that in our own lives. You say, what is godliness anyway? Well, it was a Greek term. There's a whole bunch of Greek gods, right? We know about the Greek gods. And um, if you respected those gods, that would be godliness, reverence for those gods, trying to please those gods, um, imitate those gods, to be like those gods and have a reverence for them. That was, that was godliness. You are a godly person if you're kind of following the gods. But for the Christian life, there's not many gods. There's one God. Now, Timothy has a lot to say. Paul has a lot to say in this book about godliness. Turn over to chapter 2 and verse 2. I want you to see some of these, some verses on godliness, the way Paul uses it here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says this in verse 1, he says, "...to pray for kings and for all who are in authority so that you will lead a tranquil and quiet life in all what? In all godliness." And, and dignity. Godliness is to be seen in our lives. It's the way we are to live our lives. We, we reverently, uh, uh, respectfully live our lives to the God's glory and to God's honor, and that's godliness. If you turn over to chapter 3 and verse 16, he says this, and you'll remember this, we just 
It was a couple of weeks ago that we looked at this by common confession. Great is the mystery of godliness. Now, what's he talking about there? In the Old Testament, if you remember back, in the Old Testament, godliness wasn't as clear-cut and as clear of an idea until Christ came. When Christ came, we looked at that and said, wow, that's what godliness looks like. It was a mystery before, but now it's, it's so clear. And he goes and, and expresses, he talks about Christ and that, that whole verse there. And Christ himself was the, the Son of God who come in flesh is the perfect example of godliness. Now we can see clearly that godliness is not just something external, but it was internal of the heart. If you turn over to chapter 6 and verse 3, a little bit more about godliness. <clears throat> if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, now let's stop for a second. Different doctrine, that's teaching and does not agree with sound words. I mean, he's saying the same thing over again in a different way, using different language, in sound words, in, in the right, healthy language, in good words. Those words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's being real specific. The teaching, sound words, words that Christ taught us, and with Doctrine conforming to godliness. Teaching conforming to godliness. Man, that's four times he mentions the words. Words that, that conform to godliness. The two have to go together. If you have sound doctrine, there will in essentially be uh, uh, godliness that comes along with that. It just will. It will. If it's sound, clear doctrine. Now, in this context, Paul is pointing out to Timothy that uh, there's false teachers out there, and, and one of the ways you can tell is just by their conduct. Are they godly? They may have these right words, but if it's not the right words conforming to godliness, then you better be aware. And then, of course, down in verse 11, he says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness and godliness. We are to pursue it. We are to pursue it. So what is godliness? One of the commentaries that I read, John Kitchen, you, the name's familiar now because I, I appreciate his commentary, but here's what he says. He says it's an outward evidence of genuine faith in and reverence for God. It's an outward evidence. You see it in some way. You see this reverence for God, this respect for God, this desire to please God, and it just comes out in our life. It's the right attitude and respect toward our Creator. And it should be a natural thing. One commentary said it's a preoccupation of the heart with holy and sacred reality. It's coming to that realization that there is a God and He has authority over us. He created us and He is in control of these things. And it's just the proper response to that. And it, it essentially is it's a heart for God course, that leads to obedience. So godliness is, is seen in our thinking, it's seen in our attitudes, it's seen in our words, it's seen in our behavior, and they all line up with God. They're consistent with God's words. It's a reverence and respect for God that leads to, essentially, to obedience. And discipline is to be for the purpose of godliness, for the purpose of godliness. How do, how do we see that? What does that look like? Well, 
You have a reverence to, for God, you're going to love God, right? You're going to be devoted to God. You're going to be devoted to His Word. You're going to be devoted and love His people and His kingdom. It's seen in the fruit of the Spirit as the Holy Spirit works in your life. It's seen in these characteristics of the elder and the deacon. It's, it comes out. And again, it's a natural outflowing. You say, well, how can sinful people, how can sinners really be godly? <laughs> and that's a good question. How can we? What can we, what can we do? We'll turn over just a quick passage uh, just, to, just to remind you of these things. Second Peter Chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, just verse 3. I just want to point this out to you. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He has granted this to us. Everything pertaining to life and God. We have it all. We have the resources right here. In fact, He's already bent our heart towards righteousness. Not, not any longer towards sin. We do sin, but He bends our, heart, bends our hearts toward righteousness. And He gives us the resources necessary. We have everything that we need pertaining how to live life and, and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His, by His own glory and excellence. And then he says, now that's really interesting. We have that resource here. What do we do with that? Down in verse uh, 4, he begins to say, maybe it's 5, that he says, now take this faith that you have, and we'll come back to that, this hope of the heart, this faith, and he says, I want you to add to it. Add to it. Apply all diligence in your faith, in verse 5. Supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, what? Godliness. We have to actually build that into our lives. We want to show respect for God. How do we do that? We, we search the Scriptures, and we begin to build that into our lives. It's deliberately, intentionally building in. So it's not just uh, something haphazard. We have to think through these things. We have to know what we're doing. We have the resources. I appreciate what uh, uh, one commentary had to say. He says, when words capture our beliefs and values, they guide our lives. Let me say that again. When words capture our beliefs and our values, they guide our lives. Listen, do we really believe what we think we believe? Or do we really believe what we say we believe? Are they guiding your life? That's just, that's godliness. That's godliness. And we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. You say, why should we do that? Why should we do that? What's the benefit to us? Turn back to verse 8. For the purpose of godliness, the end of verse 7. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 8, but bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things. Profitable for all things. Since it holds promise for the present life. That's this life. He's talking concretely uh, here, clearly here. This life and also for the one to come. Godliness is profitable. Why be, why be godly? Why pursue godliness? Because it's profitable. It's profitable here in this life and also in the life to come. You say, well, how, how is it profitable in this life? Let's go back to 
Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3. You probably will know this verse, but Proverbs chapter 3, in verse 7, Solomon said it like this. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, that's, that's godliness. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshing to your bones. There is some profit here on this earth. You seek to please God with your life, and it's a, it's a healthier living. We don't live under the weight of guilt anymore. And it's, it's much healthier in, your, in this physical life. And of course, when we discipline ourselves, even, even physical discipline is good to a certain degree. I mean, we could serve the Lord better when we're, when we're uh, alert and when we're doing uh, things that keep us fit and, and, and going. But the, it also has profit, benefit to our future as well. Of course, we know that. Salvation. It's not that we're gaining our salvation, but that's a gift to us. And the rewards that we have from pursuing godliness. There's many of them. I don't, I, I don't think we need to go into those things. I think there's other... The, the point being here with Paul is he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You, you are to pursue it. You're to pursue it, aggressively pursue it. Now, unfortunately, we have many pastors, many churches today that are not pursuing godliness. They're pursuing success. They're pursuing uh, money. They're pursuing power or, or a, a big church to be a celebrity star or gain status in some way. You know what? We do the same thing. We are to pursue godliness. Not fame, not popularity, not even our own reputation, but we pursue godliness. That's what Paul says. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he says, we, we run after it. We run in such a way as to win, he says. And I'm afraid what we do is we just, we've got, uh, we come into the door of Christianity and we think we're safe and we're, we're just okay. We, we've got this uh, whole eternity thing down and we just kind of sit back and we don't do anything about godliness. And Paul says, run in such a way. He says, I discipline my body. I beat it. I make it subject to what I want it to do. So I have to ask myself this question. I have to ask you this question. Do you discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness? Now, we don't like that term discipline at all. (laughs) Frankly, it's hard. It's hard to say no to your flesh. And so what what we find ourselves doing is just feeding the flesh. Physically, many times on things that don't matter and, and is not good. It is not good. We are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And it's a real discipline. It's something that we have to do. We have to focus on. We have to focus on it. It doesn't just happen. I think, I think we get all wrong here in our thinking. But Paul is just so adamant here that we are to discipline ourselves. We are to focus on these things. Now, let's go on because he, he speaks to this a little bit more in verse 10. But look at principle number 6. The good servant has a motivating, enduring hope 
that is fixed on God. Motivating, enduring hope that is fixed on God. In verse 10, he says, For it is for this. It is for what? It is for this. For what? Pointing back to godliness. This godliness, that's what. It is for this we labor and strive. We labor and strive for this. Now, he's kind of picking up the same point, and he's, he's kind of just driving it home. For this, we labor. We, we become weary to the point of exhaustion in this. We strive, agonizomai. We agonize over these things. It's like we, we um, engage in a, in a battle, in a struggle for our, own, our very own life. And our life is in danger if we do not pursue these things. Man, that's pretty strong, folks. That's pretty strong. When was the last time you agonized to be godly? When was the last time you, you pushed yourself to control your words? You pushed yourself to be patient. You, you disciplined. You said no to your own body. I, I really want these things, but I'm going to say no to my own body. I'm going to discipline my own self for the purpose of godliness. Why so intense? Paul gives us that. Why so intense? Why is it so important that we do these things? He says, this is, this is, we, we labor for this because, and I love that word, because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all mankind, or all men. We have fixed our hope. We have a, a hope that is fixed upon God. We live in light of this spiritual reality. It is true. We cannot, we cannot deny it. Now, most of the time we, we go right to this, the last part of that verse, who is the Savior of all mankind, and then we get into a, a theological debate and, and what does this word mean. And let me give you three, uh, three different views of this, this little passage. How can God be the Savior of all men? especially those who believe. I mean, it kind of sounds like universalism. That would be the first view. Universalism. Those who would say that, that God is going to save everybody. He may save those who believe first, but eventually He's going to save everybody. That's universalism. That is inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. The Bible says we are to believe. If you do not believe, Christ said, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. There is no salvation for those who do not believe. There's no salvation for it. It sounds like Paul's saying that, though. And they would point. They would point to this verse. And we can get rid of the whole doctrine of hell. He's not going to send anybody to hell if he's the Savior of all men, right? What in the world does Paul mean here? Well, number two, the second uh, position, the second um, uh, view on this passage here, this little phrase, is that it is potential salvation. It is potential. It's not actual salvation. Christ is potentially the Savior of uh, all men, not actually saving all men. He's just talking about universal sufficiency. Now, certainly God is sufficient to save all men. He certainly can do that, but I don't think that that is as accurate as it should be and I would, I would pick the third, third position here, that God actually saves all men. 
<laughs> you say, oh, that's a little shocking. But the word save here isn't necessarily from sin. And it's not uh, from sin all the time that we see it in Scripture. In fact, in the Old Testament, it's used a lot uh, just about just talking about deliverance, especially in, in the, the book of Judges where um, uh, Israel would be sinning. They would be in their sinful state and falling away from God, and they would cry out to God, and God would send a judge, and the judge would deliver them. And that's the word. They would be saved. They would save them from this immediate temporal uh, world, uh, the, the Midianites or the Philistines that were coming in and attacking. And God would send uh, Samson or Gideon, and he would save them. And I think that's the sense he's talking about here. There's a sense in which God saves the whole world, and it's, he does this by having a plan of salvation. Here, here's what he says. I'm going to save these people. And so uh, he delays his imminent danger, his imminent wrath, his imminent punishment for man, and he spares their life. Only temporary, only temporary, but they are spared. They are spared. And so the saving here is, is a temporal saving from punishment, from immediate wrath. We all deserve God's wrath soon as we sin. The first sin, even when we're young, we sin and, and we deserve His wrath. We deserve His punishment. We should be in hell for all eternity. And so God saves us. He pulls back and He saves us from that. But, He says, specifically, especially, He says, actually a better translation is, most of all or above all, this saving grace, not just common grace, but specifically for those who believe Him. Believers, you put your faith and trust in God and He saves you. He saves you. That's a wonderful picture. It says, while uh, this is what John MacArthur said about this passage, while God's love extends to the entire world and Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for all, it is clearly efficient only for those who believe. Put your faith and trust. There, there is a gate that we have to go through. It is not universalism. It's not just throwing open the, the gates that everybody is saved. No, there's a condition that has to be believed. God has to be believed. Now, let's don't lose fact. Let's don't lose uh, the point of the passage. Let's go back to what that is. And that is our hope is fixed on a living God who saves. A God who is the Savior of the world. Unlimited. Unlimited. He is a living, saving God. So why do we pursue godliness? Because our hope is fixed on Him. Our hope is fixed on Him. This word hope is a, again, it's a perfect tense. And it's, uh, it's the idea here is we enter into this hope at some point in time. There's a specific point in time. It's a perfect tense. And it continues on to the present. It can, it's an enduring hope. First Peter, Peter says that uh, this is a hope that will not die. This is a, a living hope. This is a living faith. 
And when you have that living faith in yourself, it pursues, you pursue godliness. That's what 1 John chapter 3 says. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that's Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. Why do we pursue godliness? Because our hope is on God. All of it. And it's a kind of a unique hope. This is a unique faith that only comes from God. It's a hope, it's a faith that will not die. Our faith dies. Our faith kind of wanes. It's kind of in one day and out the next. I don't know if I'm good, for, or good enough. I'm not, I'm not sure if I can do this. And we sometimes tend to put our hope in other things and other people. But a good servant, his hope is in, is fixed on a living God, a God who saves. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what is your hope in? Is it in your own thinking? Is it in your own intellect? Is it in your own self? I'm the master of my own destination, my own destiny. Many of us live like that. Some of us will say, oh, I'll try that Christianity thing as long as the Lord continues to bless me. But when He, bless, when he stops blessing me, man, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm out. I'm not going to put all my eggs in that one basket. I'm not going to trust God fully or all the way. I'll just kind of test out the waters. I'll go to church. I'll kind of do the Christian thing just in case. And that, there's no place for that in the Christian church. There's no place for that in, in the Word of God. Our hope is fixed on a living and saving God. A living and saving God. You say, how do we pursue? Well, let me go back. Let me just remind us of the song that we sang. I want, you to, I want, I want to read this verse to you. This is a song that we just sang. I want you to listen to the words in light of this verse. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. That's my own self, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Man, does that characterize your life? When darkness veils its loving face, face, I rest on His unchanging grace. Do you really? In every high and stormy veil, my anchor holds. My anchor holds within the veil. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. He goes on to say, His oath, His covenant, His blood Support me in this whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. When all around your soul gives way. Sometimes our soul gives way, doesn't it? Sometimes it, it, just, it just happens. It, we, don't, we don't have the strength within ourselves. It says, He then is all my hope and stay. He is the only thing that we hang on to. We pursue godliness because that's all we've got. We've got Him to hang on to and nothing else. When He shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And good words. On Christ the solid rock I stand. Is that true of your life? You say, well, how can we pursue godliness? What do we actually do? 
Oswald Sanders, he says this, spiritual ends, that would be godliness. If we're going to pursue godliness, spiritual ends can be achieved only by spiritual men who employ spiritual methods. Spiritual methods, and those methods are very simple. Things you know. The Word of God. Means of grace, how to grow in godliness. We saturate our minds with the Word of God. We begin to think like God thinks. We take on His attitudes. We take on His values. And all of that comes from the Word of God. We conform ourselves to Him. He actually, at the same time, is transforming us inside out to His character. We also pray. These are all disciplines, by the way. We discipline ourselves to pray. And we know that that doesn't change God's mind at all. It changes us more than anything. It causes us to be more in tune with what He is doing. And then number three, we sacrifice ourselves. We say no to prideful self, and we begin to serve other people. And man, that, that crucifies this, this flesh. And our hope, hope is in the Lord, and it is to be worked out in our lives. Do you know First uh, Peter uh, chapter 3, Peter reminds us of this. It is this hope that lies within us should be so evident that people see it. And he says this in First Peter chapter 3 verse, um, verse 15, he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to ask you to give an account for what? For the hope that lies within you. Can people see your hope that is fixed on God? Can they see that? Is it, is it so much so to the point that its godliness just lives out in your life because your hope is fixed on God? My hope is built on nothing less. That's strong. That's strong. But you know what? That's as biblical as can be. Why do we pursue godliness? Why do we hotly discipline ourselves for godliness? Because that's the only thing we have on this earth. Is God. Now the question is, is it real? Is your hope fixed on God? Or do you have 90% fixed on God and eh, about 10% on, uh, on things, on money, and on my own success, my own thinking, my own intellect? Or is it 100%? It's sink or swim. It's all or nothing. My hope is on the Lord. My hope is on the Lord. Now that's convicting to my own life. Um, the time is getting away. So let's, uh, I don't want to go on to the next point. We'll just stop it there. So let's just ask some questions. How are you lining up? Are you a good servant? Could God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant to you? When you get to heaven, is, is this checklist going to be there? And, and is he going to say, well done to you, to you? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I, I just thank you, Lord, for these thoughts. Father, there's, there's no way that we can even hold ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We have to be fixed 
Our hope has to be fixed on you. It has to be a hope that you place in our life. It's a hope that is, is living and active. And Lord, help us, to, help us to have that kind of hope. And Lord, it's cultivated by knowing your word. It's cultivated by our focus being on spiritual things, on the, the spiritual realities of life, of this world, in eternity, looking at life, this life, in light of all eternity. And that just causes us to, to be godly, to want to be godly, to desire it, to have that respect for you, that desire for you, that you deserve, and that reverence for you that leads to obedience. Father, we thank you for, again, for the guidance you give us in this, in this life with this word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to stand. If you, can, if you would have any questions, if you would like to speak with one of us, I'll be in the back. We'd love to be able to help you even throughout the week. We'd love to be able to do that. These are serious things. These are sobering things. You have to think about these things. This is the Word of God here. This is not playing around. Is your hope fixed on a true and living God? Father, I just thank you uh, for a refreshing time in your Word. Lord, help us to examine ourselves as is appropriate. And then, Lord, help us to mentally challenge our, our, ourselves to be disciplined in godliness so much so that the world says... Where do you get that kind of hope? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.